Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery, but today is a gift. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Hello and welcome to Jen Taylor Rerouting, where being rude is never acceptable, but sarcasm is welcome and swearing isn't always a bad option. Let's get started. Welcome to Jen Taylor Rerouting. This is Jen. I'm here with my friend Ralph, and I can call him my friend because we actually went to high school together, which is pretty astounding. How are you doing, Ralph? I'm doing really well. I'm super excited because I just read your new newest book. How many books do you have published? Two. So that's what I thought, but one time I said something and I got it wrong with someone else, so now I always ask. You know, I've written three, but the first one that I wrote was a children's book, and I had it illustrated, but then the illustrator no longer likes me, so they refused to let me publish it. <laughs> <laughs> that was an awesome thing to learn that I didn't know. Yeah, true story. It's an adorable book, too. Oh, that's too bad. You need yeah. a new illustrator. Okay, so other than the non-published illustrator book, you have two. So we, um, you grew up in Vermont. We went to high school together. Yep. Um, and then through the blessings of social media, we were able to find each other again. Thank God for Facebook. But for Facebook. Okay. So there's always good and bad about technology, but that was actually one of the great things is that I left high school in 1988, which there were dinosaurs then. And um, I never spoke to anyone until right after our 20th year class reunion. And at that point, when I kind of got back in touch with everyone, I was really bummed that I missed it. So next year's 30 and I'm going to be there. That's good for you. Yay. Good plan, huh? Yeah. So you grew up in Vermont. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about growing up. What was well, that like? I actually grew up in Massachusetts. Oh, you're one of those. I grew up on the run. On the run. Yeah, we bounced around constantly. Like when I was a kid, we used to, you know, it's funny thinking about it. My mom would, if somebody came to the door, she'd run out of the living room because the door to the house was always in the living room. You know, that's where you entered. And she would always bolt. And then we'd follow because we didn't know what was happening. But then she'd go, no, no, no. Go answer the door. And if it's the landlord, tell him we're not here. <laughs> like, how many times I've my sister and I would answer the door and, and uh, tell the landlord that my parents weren't there. And they'd be so baffled. They're like, how old are you? You know, four, five, you know. And they're like, and you're by yourself. Yes. <laughs> Bye for a minute. <laughs> I don't know if it's a New England thing, but we bounced around a lot too. Cause I spent the first 13 years in Rhode Island, but I also lived in New Hampshire and I, you know, I mean like, I don't know what it is about either our generation or New England. I haven't figured it out, but we, we did the same thing. We bounced around and it and we were very, very below poverty. So. Yeah, so, are we. so are we, but I think I, I'm still moving around and I'm in my 40s. So, I mean, my parents, when I mean, they were, they were the same age as I am now, you know, 46. They were when, because we moved from Massachusetts to Vermont in like 1983, 80. Yes, yeah, so I was like 12, 13 when we moved to Vermont. Yeah, so my, me too. Been, so they must have been in their late 30s by then. Yeah, they had to be like almost 40. So, Right. You kind of find your way. My mom was from Vermont. 
That's where okay. she grew up. She had some, you know, some family here, there, and all that stuff. So. Well, that's the thing about New England. We have family everywhere. People are like, where you're from? And I'm like, New England. They're like, no, what state? I'm like, no, you don't understand. Like, I'm exactly. from all of them. <laughs> um, it's just a little bit different. So what was it like growing up other than the income and the bouncing around? Any traumas, uh, tragedies, parents, siblings? Well, tell me. I, Jennifer, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm I'm setting the backdrop here. I'm setting the backdrop. No, you know, I I think that uh I think that I probably had a pretty regular traumatic childhood as traumatic childhoods go, you know. I don't think that um I don't think that I don't know, it's it's so it's so in retrospect and I've so thought about it so much, but I had the most of you know, you talk about bullies nowadays. And how bullies in schools, it's really a big thing. And it's right. really a big thing. And it seems to be, at least the light that it seems to be in now, is it's a stranger bullying you. And I grew up the youngest of four, and I was bullied at home. I did not get bullied at school. I didn't get beat up at school. I didn't get my friend. I had friends in the neighborhood that didn't, get, that didn't bully me. I got bullied by my sister and my brothers. I, I mean like physically bullied, beat up all the time. I was more scared at home than I was anywhere else as a kid. So this whole idea of bullying, like schools have all these bully bullying policies, they would have never protected me. Like, <laughs> like there's not one, unless you, unless you came and, you know, sat down and had a conversation with my dad, you know, like, hey, would you stop bullying your youngest? <laughs> <laughs> there was no, there was no, uh, there was no stopping it. So I, I hated it. I hated being the youngest, I hated always being the smallest. I was the runt. I was, you know, beatings went, you know, went down for me. So if my oldest brother got beat for doing something wrong, he would beat my other brother, who'd beat my sister, who'd beat, you know what I mean? Like it always trickled down to me. And I hated, I hated it. I hated it. I know that for a lot of us that grew up born in 70, raised in the 70s, uh, it's generationally things were a lot different. I'm not excusing that in any way, but alcohol was a little bit more rampant or rampant in a different way. Was that an experience for you at all growing up? Absolutely. My dad was a huge alcoholic. We used to have parties at my house all the time and you know, we would be sent upstairs to our rooms at seven o'clock on a Saturday. And, you know, we'd just sit at the top of the stairs for hours listening to them. I mean, they'd have people all over. There'd be fist fights. There'd be things being broken and loud music. And it was, you know, to your point, very normal. It was weird. It, weird normal. And we didn't really know that it was any different or that there was anything wrong. Although I remember being a kid thinking, this can't be right. <laughs> This can't be how we should all be treating each other. This, no. There should be. But you have no, nothing nothing to compare it to you you have no other experience and it wasn't only in my house and so maybe i was wrong maybe it was, maybe it is right and i just don't have a clue but um alcohol and sort of that physical loudness and abusiveness was very very common that doesn't make it okay but it was very common so you and i moved to vermont around the same time and we went to uh spalding high school yeah. and uh Tell me how your high school experience was. It was pretty terrible. <laughs> but again, well, I mean, most of us would say that there are terrible parts of our high school, but what was terrible for you in high school? That I followed my sister and my two brothers. 
So youngest, youngest of four, and what did they do? I had, I had the worst reputation before I got there. I did. It was just a terrible reputation, it, and they did not do well, and none of us were ever very emotionally um, intelligent. We didn't have very good. We we could not hide our feelings. You know, we couldn't process any sort of critique or criticism. And everybody was very quick to fly off the handle, which is how my dad was and my mom was. You know, I mean, it was just, it was, I think I would have done, I wish I'd have done, I, I can't even explain high school because I'm not the only one. There's a few of us who quit high school, quit this high school at 16, who now have college degrees. I'm not the only one. There are a few of us in this graduating class, an ungraduating class. And so it can't just be my home life, but there also has to be something with the school. The assistant principal is the one who suggested that I quit. He was the first person to suggest I quit was the assistant principal. And so I think when I talked to the other couple of people who, who also went through it, I think they too were, you know, had the same conversation with the assistant principal or somebody in the school that suggested that they weren't anything, weren't ever going to be anything, and they were just wasting their time being there. So they should just quit. Holy cow. I yeah. mean, it's bad enough to feel pressure from home or pressure from siblings or pressure from, but yeah, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, I don't think it's up there on tophighschools.com or anything like that. Um, but no, we weren't ever encouraged really academically at all. And what I found about, you know, in Barrie, Vermont, I don't know if I'm sure this is in other places, is that small town, a lot of hardworking people, uh, granite quarries, uh, you know. And um, I remember hearing in high school a friend of mine saying, there's no place better to live than here. And I said, well, where have you gone? And he'd never been anywhere more than a two hour drive away from Barrie, Vermont. And I thought, how the hell do you know that there's nothing better if you've never experienced it? And there was a feeling for me of claustrophobia. Um, and I wasn't sure if it was New England or if it was my family or if it was Vermont or what it was, but I just remember thinking, I have got to get out of here. And if I decide to come back because it's such a great place, then that's wonderful. But I need to find that out for myself. So you, I think you find people that the kids are doing the same job the dad did, taking over the same house, living, you know, like, and it never changes. Yeah, but it's not terrible. I, mm -mm. I think that's terrible. I, no. I think, it's all about, I think it's all about perspective and who you're, like, my parents never, they, they never checked my homework. No. They never ensured that it was done. Mm -mm. I think, you know, like when I, let me give you an example. My mom caught me smoking when I was like 12 years old and she caught me. She was driving by, I was walking home from school and she was driving by and she saw me smoking. That was the longest walk home after that. Cause I knew I was going to get in trouble. Like this was the world was going to end by the way, everyone in my family smokes. So I was literally the last person to start smoking. My brothers and sisters, I already started smoking. And so I remember like, doing procrastinating doing anything i can to not go home so it takes me a couple of hours to get home now because i finally walk in the door my mother's in the kitchen and she turns to me and she says you better not start stealing my cigarettes she didn't say you shouldn't smoke 
I don't want to see you smoking again. She didn't say, what the heck were you doing on the corner with a cigarette? She didn't say, cigarettes are bad. She, don't you dare start stealing. You know, she's already getting them stolen from everybody else. Don't, but that was, so I mean, smoking was acceptable. It was almost, ex, it was expected that I was going to be a smoker. Right. It was that I was going to be a high school dropout. It was expected that I was going to be a drinker and an overeater and somebody who doesn't care. So you've, you've fulfilled that oh, yeah. prophecy. Absolutely. So you dropped out of high school, you're smoking, you're drinking, and you're overeating. I don't remember you being heavier in high school. No, I was never heavy until I got out of the Marine Corps. Okay. Yeah, I broke my back, and then that was, that was it. Okay. So join the Marine Corps. How did you break your back? Uh, it was a combined arm exercise. It was pretty stupid. All right. <laughs> it, you know what? It, it, it's not even worth talking about. Okay. It was, let me say this. It, a lot of people, I mean, being a Marine is probably the greatest thing I've ever, you know, besides being a dad, I, I, being a Marine is just the top, the top, because it's one of those things you really have to earn. And I love every bit of it, but I, there were, there are, there are, there are way too many things that have gone on between that by the time I went in and by the time now that people have gone through that I would be the biggest smuck in the world if I tried to get a 10% discount because I have a Marine Corps ID or something. I hate that. I don't want There are people who actually went to war. I never went to war. There are people who spent, you know, years away from home and deployment. I did not spend years away from home. A lot more people have a lot more credibility behind them being in the military than I do. So I don't even want to, I, it would, it would belittle their, you know what, let me, let me, I'm going to give you a prime example. This is so terrible. I'm going to give you a prime example. I broke my back. And so they put me in the Navy. They asked me to work in the Navy, in the Navy um, hospital. Cause I really wasn't deployable. I couldn't do much, but I'm smart and, and organized and they needed an admin chief, just somebody to fill that billet for a while. And so I go into this resident aid station and I redo all the books and figure out how everything's supposed to go. And the senior chief comes in, this new senior chief comes in and he, we go through a command general readiness inspection, a CGRI. And I, we were the only regiment to pass with flying colors. And it's an admin inspection. It's was all the reports filled. It's that kind of thing. So he's like, I'm going to put you in for a Navy Marine Corps Achievement Medal. And I was like, well, that's badass. I like that. That's pretty cool. So now fast forward. I'm on the parade deck with eight other Marines. And we're all being awarded the Navy Marine Corps Achievement Medal. For some reason, I'm like sixth. So there's five people who are going to go before me. And so their citations are being read. Lance Corporal Smuckatelli took a bullet while defending whatever. I'm like, holy cow. Navy Marine Corps Achievement Medal. Oh, that's pretty awesome. Then the next one. Corporal so-and-so, you know, never gave away his position even though he was being run over by a Humvee. Navy Marine Corps. They get to me. Ralph put papers together really well. Like it was so, I was like, really? They deserve a better reward. Then oh, award then then it shouldn't be the same award. So I guess that's what I mean. Like it's so insignificant my role <laughs> ever in the Marine Corps. So uh, you did you get your GED to join the Marines? No, I got my GED <laughs> because they wouldn't let me go to high school. <laughs> oh. so I didn't know. 
tell you, talk about how much I didn't know. I went to, I, when I, when I woke up, you know, like so depressed, I was, I just, I wrote about it in the book. I, I was listening to, um, I found Rush Limbaugh on the radio. He truly saved my life. He changed my, he changed my perspective. And one 15 minute conversation he was having with another listener, uh, he just changed my perspective. So I came, I, I heard him, he was talking about how, you know, it's all up to us. We live in the greatest country ever. And if you want to change, you can be the change. You don't have to wait for somebody else. Tie your own bootstraps kind of thing. So I went down, I, I called Spalding High School and asked them if I can go back. And I was 24. And they said, with a laugh, they go, no chance. I was like, oh, all right. She goes, and I have no idea who I called. I mean, who answered the phone? I have no idea. But she said, there's a new thing called Community College of Vermont. It was, at the time, it was above a restaurant in Montpelier. They didn't even have their own space yet. And I said, well, I don't have a GED yet. She goes, well, you have to get that. So go to Vermont Adult Basic Education. And they are above a furniture store, downtown Barrie, where the furniture store was. They were upstairs there. And so I went down there and this lady said, yeah, let me walk you through it. So I spent every Saturday with her for like four weeks. She helped me write essays, you know, the whole five paragraph essays, the math. She literally got me prepared reading comprehension for my GED. Got my GED, started community college. Wow. Okay. So I didn't go in the Marine Corps until after I graduated from CCV. So I oh, understood. so later. Yeah. That was later. Okay, okay. So when did you get out of the military? 2005. Okay. And in there, now talk about your first book a little bit and what you do with that. So, yeah, so I get out of the Marine Corps and I, I, I got my, I got my first bachelor's degree while I was in the Marine Corps, a bachelor's degree in U.S. history. And then when I got out of the Marine Corps, I wanted to become a teacher, but again, Vermont screwed me. No, there was a, there was a, it's, this is totally not really worth a story, but there was a, there was a coming home from abroad program in Vermont. And so you could, they were looking for teachers who had left, people who had left the state of Vermont and to come back to Vermont to become a teacher. And they, the rules were, if you were a minority, because they wanted to increase their minority teachers, if you were a minority, you didn't need to have a bachelor's degree. Like, that, you could get it waived because of your experiences and wherever you are. If you were a woman, you had to have a bachelor's degree, but you didn't have to have a specific bachelor's degree. If you are a man, like me, a white male, I, even though I had a bachelor's degree, I couldn't teach in the state of Vermont without a bachelor's degree in teaching. So if you went and you had a bachelor's degree in U.S. history like I did, you could teach in Vermont. But I couldn't because I needed to have a bachelor's degree in teaching. But if I was a minority, I wouldn't even have to have a bachelor's degree. I don't know. I but don't know. I don't understand. But yeah, I mean. I mean so I didn't, I didn't qualify. So I was really bummed because I got a teaching certificate from North Carolina State. So I after I got my bachelor's degree in U.S. history, then I went to North Carolina State to get my teaching certificate, which is a six-month course, not a college degree, so they, they wouldn't accept it. So I went back to college. I went to Champlain College. I'm actually wearing the Champlain College shirt. Look at that. I can see it. The audience can't see it, but I can yeah, I see it. Uh, I got my second bachelor's degree there in business administration. And so 
I was doing all kinds of random jobs between, between all of that, not really finding my way until I was graduating on a Sunday. And that Friday before I graduated, a guy called me and offered me a job in housekeeping. And Which is like, has nothing to do with anything you've ever done. Well, I was, I, the first job I ever had was in housekeeping when I was 16. I was like, well, my first job was cleaning condos, that kind of thing. But ski resort. But um, he was talking about management and development and, you know, we're looking for people who know how to make decisions and can run a team. And I loved it. He didn't tell me it was housekeeping until I had already accepted the position. And then he's like, oh, by the way, it's housekeeping. But I didn't, care. it was fine with me. I didn't care. And uh, I've been doing it ever since. I'm still working in housekeeping. That was, so what year was that by then? So that was 15 years ago. So 14 years ago. Okay. However, whatever the math whatever. is. Whatever. Yeah. Let's not, we don't want to tax ourselves. Yeah. It was 2005. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. and then you, you, not only did you really like it and you were excited about it, the management and the whole thing, you embraced it, but with like a fury and wrote a book and you travel around teaching people how to manage housekeeping. I mean, like you took that job opportunity and went steroid on it. Yeah. I really liked it. I like, you know what I like the most about housekeeping is nobody expects anything from us. <laughs> Because we're the lowest, we're the most uneducated, we're, you know, that's how they look at us, you know, we're the, the dregs of society. And the truth is, we're the most sincere, hardworking, most thoughtful, most resourceful bunch of people you'll ever, ever meet. You'll be, you'd be lucky to hire and promote and work with a housekeeping manager because the housekeeping management is like guerrilla warfare. You're working with people who do not. My first book is called Managing When No One Wants to Work. And I don't mean, I'm not, it's not a play like, oh, today's kids don't want to work. It's a play that nobody wants to be a housekeeper. No one. No one ever goes to their guidance counselor and says, hey, I want to be a housekeeper. How do I? We accidentally show up in housekeeping. Uh, well, I did. I mean, like you said, you did it at 16. You know, you get odd jobs cleaning. And then I, when my first daughter was born, there were two things that I could do where I didn't have to put her in daycare, which meant I saved daycare and I spent time with her. And one was being a nanny, which I did. And the other was cleaning houses, which I did. And I brought her with me. And you also get paid when you're doing it on your own, not under a company. I got paid cash under the table. And so it was also a way to like, have a, just a little extra cash in your pocket for cleaning houses. And then 10 years ago, I did it again. Cause again, it's, it's, it's not hard really. Um, and I don't love it. I don't love cleaning my own house, but it was, it's not an awful thing to do to, to yeah. clean someone's house or whatever it is. And you know, you're kind of left alone. You have run of the place, you do your own thing. You can play your music. You can, um, Really, it has a bad rap, but it did really great things for me at a couple different times in my life when that was the only thing that fit the bill. So mm -hmm. it's too bad. You're right. It's too bad it got a bad rap because yeah. it's, it's not horrible, but it is difficult to manage. It's very difficult to manage because people find themselves there and they don't want to be there. It's recognized very quickly how low bottom of the barrel kind of work we do. And so nobody really wants to do it. So it's very, it's very challenging. But then I got hooked up with the International Executive Housekeepers Association, IHA. And that's really what turned me around. They hired me. They gave me my first writing, my first real writing job. I started writing a column called Talking Dirty with Ralph Peterson in their, in their magazine about housekeeping management. 
you relax. <laughs> I'm trying, I try not to laugh out loud because I interrupt you, but <laughs> that's really fun. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so that's, that's how I started. That's how I started uh, writing about management development, about housekeeping specifically. And I've been wanting, I've been writing since I was eight. I love the escapism of writing. It is my favorite thing to do. Yep. My favorite thing. Yeah, and you and I, you and I agree on that and love that. And I love, you're right. It's almost like being on stage, but privately, because you can kind of be anybody you want. And I never make mistakes. Uh, <laughs> I'm always zero, always. Always. <laughs> um, so now in the new book, the new book is called Adventures in Dietland, uh, How to Win at the Game of Dieting from a Former Fat Guy. I, I've loved watching this whole process because once you are a published author, like you were first and then you were seeing my journey. And so you jumped in to like, give me virtual hugs, you know, cause you've been through it. And then I did it. And then you were doing your second one. And it's so exciting when you see that because it's, it is tough to get a book out. And that's why 85% of people who want to write them never do. And you're not a published author. And that's why it's so cool when you are a published author and you should give yourself that credit, which I'm not always good at, but it's a pretty badass thing to do. So you went through your adventures in Dietland and you, I mean, if I had talked to you prior to the book, it would have been all this information no one knew about you. Now you are, you are very raw in this book. I don't know. Is there anything left that no one knows? <laughs> Cause no. I try to podcast about the stuff behind the stuff, you know? Yeah. yeah. No, not a lot. So where in there, you started working your job and you loved it and you wrote a book and that whole journey was great, but you weren't great in that. That's journey. Right. That's right. So let's bounce back to that. Okay. So the thing, the thing about managers, truthfully, and this I think runs the gamut for most of us, is that to get really good at managing, managing is, is its own profession. And to get really good at it when you don't, when you have very limited skills at it at first, you try to take on the responsibility of managing everybody's individual lives. Because it's not, it's no longer that um, I just need them to do the job. It's also that I understand that you have children or that your car isn't working or, you know, some, so all of a sudden I'm outside of the job trying to help manage you, help get you in. And through all of that, we stop managing ourselves. We start going into work earlier, staying later, eating at our desk, eating the worst food ever at our desk, skipping meals. So by the time we get in the car and going home, you know, we're driving by the fast food place. We're just going to get something there. It's easier, more convenient because we're burning ourselves out because we're managing everything except ourselves. You go from managing you, because that's how you get, it, get promoted. You get promoted by being the best worker. And you get promoted by being the best worker by being able to manage yourself well. You're the person who gets to work on time. You're the person who's always dependable. You're the person who comes in on Saturdays and Sundays when it's not your Saturday and Sunday to work. You know? it's your, you're the person who gets your job done and then is able to and willing to help other people. That person is the one we look at to promote they're really good at managing themselves and then they get into a leadership position and they stop managing themselves they start managing others and that's where we lose that's where i lost i would i didn't even see it when i was in it i totally see it now but i would be talking to people about managing their lives while i'm two-fisting cheeseburgers i'm large as a house my desk is a mess my I can't find files on my computer because they're all scattered. Like I stopped managing everything. If you have 
stacks and stacks of papers and files on your desk and your desktop is all full of stuff, you're, you're going to step back because there's some chaos underlying in there that's really going to be sabotaging you in the end. And that's really where I found myself. I started drinking more and eating more. And boy, I, I was just talking to my friend Adam about, about drinking. And because he, he too went through a similar, you know, trying to quit drinking and all that stuff. And I, I started drinking because it was fun to have a cocktail. Right. I mean, that's how it starts. It wasn't like I was depressed and so I'm looking for alcohol. It wasn't anything like that. I wasn't depressed. I was very happy-go-lucky, the life of the party. And then there was no party to be had. And I was by myself in a hotel room. And I was like, well, this sucks. You know what's going to make this better? Some Jack Daniels. And so, you know, I go get my friend Jack Daniels. And then it was so dumb. Like, there'd be a sale on Jack Daniels. And so I'd buy like a whole case of Jack Daniels. And then, you know, I'm packing for the week because I traveled a lot. and. I mean, if you bought a case of Jack Daniels, think of my reasoning, and you're going to have Jack Daniels on the road, you might as well just pack it in your suitcase. I was packing Jack Daniels. <laughs> yeah. So. And it got away from me. And so I started drinking yes. seven days a week, and uh, it was not good. And you were married. Yeah. But that was, uh, that seemed okay. In the book, when you write about it, there were moments there were you had a lot of low moments where you think oh, this is the bottom but it wasn't quite the bottom yet and i didn't feel like i'm not throwing her under the bus because i don't know her but i felt like she was okay with who you were and what was going on there wasn't a lot of support for you to make the positive changes that you wanted to make but weren't making yeah no no that's that's a good observation because that's that's actually that's true but we, we both found ourselves in quite a precarious situation where if you gotta, you gotta, I guess, imagine, and I'm, I'm just coming to her defense. You gotta imagine what it's probably like to be with me. I'm, I'm, um, you know, she, she really liked the idea of having children and setting down and, and PTA and, you know, her job started at eight o'clock. She would get there at eight o'clock. She was not, I'm going to be there 15 minutes early. I'm not going to stay 15 minutes late. I mean, at eight, I'm left at five, you know, that kind of very, just rather be home and whatever. And I was the opposite of that. I'm, you know, job starts at eight. I'll get there at six. I'll get and start. I'll stay till eight, you know, uh, and, you know, do everything. And I'm, I'm going to night school. I mean, I went to night school for 10 years straight. 10 years. I, all these times I talk about going to school, it was all while I was working full time. I never got to go, oh, I'm just going to live in my mom's house and go to school. It just never was that way with me because I was an older student, of course. So it was, I know that she hated me, actually, and, and not hated like loathe, but you know, I mean, I'm not a difficult person to be with. And we were married for 16 years and we both drank every day. And I, you know, talking about hitting rock bottom, I woke up and fell down the stairs. You know, I hit rock bottom and then fell down the stairs. She didn't. And so when I was like, I need help, I need to quit, she wasn't where I was. She was like, I'm, you know, because if, if you're going to do it, then you're going to make me do it. And I quit smoking cigarettes and we were married and she was a smoker and I made her quit with me. And I didn't realize it until much later that I actually made her do it. I thought she was totally on board too. Why wouldn't she want to quit? Why wouldn't she want to take a smoking cessation class? 
But then she confided in me seven years, eight years later when I caught her smoking because I didn't know she was still smoking. She had quit for a bunch of years, but then she picked it back up and was closet smoking for a number of years. And she's like, I never wanted to quit. You wanted to. And so I kind of went along to get along, but I, you know what I mean? So that when this new thing came up, I'm like, I'm done drinking forever too. She's like, yeah, I'm not going to play this one with you. You're, you're on your own. You're on your own. So I understand it. I totally do. But it was, I was not where I needed to be. Well, and there's one thing in the, there is one thing in the book that you don't explain. Uh, it says, uh, who are you talking to? I don't remember who you're talking to, but it's a friend of yours. And um, you're talking about different diet programs. Oh, it was Adam. So the thing about the word diet that I don't like is that my diet's just what I eat. I'm not yeah, on one. Huh? The coffee enema. Come on. What is a coffee? And I mean, that sounds like, I can't even tell you. I read that. I was like, I cannot wait to turn the page and read all about Ralph and his coffee enema because I have a morbid, sick curiosity. And yeah. that was it. There was no yeah, more. I never brought it up again. Whole book. No, you never even brought it up. There's not even a, there's, so there's one dangling reference. Yeah. So is there seriously a diet where you do a coffee enema or did you come up with that on your own? What the hell is it? <laughs> there's not a, there's not a diet. Let me, let me say this. So uh, two things about that. One, when I, when I decided that I was going to change and become a different person, I didn't wake up the next day, suddenly 150 pounds lighter. I woke up the next day the same weight. I still weighed 350 pounds, but my attitude changed. I wanted to be a healthy person. And that means I wanted to do everything healthy people do. And I didn't know exactly what healthy people, healthy people do. That's why I put in my book to stock thin people. Look what they do. Whatever, whatever they're eating, I'm going to eat, you know, that kind of thing. So it, it included, I knew that I needed to exercise every day. I knew that I needed to pay attention to my weight and my blood pressure and what I was around and how long I was sitting and, you know, like just trying to start being a healthy person. So couple that with, I went and saw Dr. Dwayne Dyer at the Jacob Javits Center in New York City. My friend Sarah brought me. It was the great, I'm a huge Dr. Dwayne, uh, Wayne Dyer fan. Wayne Dyer, not Dwayne Dyer. Dr. Dyer, he was an author. He's, he's recently passed away, but he's written all about the power of intention. And, you know, he's really, really smart and really on the forefront of, you know, personal development. He's right up there with Zig Ziglar and Brian Tracy and Jim Rohn. I mean, these are, these are just in modern day, you have a lot of modern day, great, great speakers now too. Grant Cardone is one of my favorites. He's, um, but so I went and saw Dr. Dyer at the Jacob Javits Center and he was talking about the power of influence on how people will suggest things to you when you at first think is just the most ridiculous thing. And he says, you know, somebody told me about coffee enemas. And I was like, who in the world would ever do that? He goes, then you fast forward six months and I'm having a conversation with my doctor about it. And they're like, you know, it's a smart thing. It's one of those things because caffeine really does help the liver, but caffeine gets broken down by the liver when you drink it internally. So the liver doesn't get any benefits or very little benefits from caffeine. So if you did a coffee enema, you would, your liver would be able to get more. He's like, so all of a sudden I'm doing 
coffee enemas. And then he makes a joke and he goes, and now I think 5,000 other people are going to. And, you know, probably at least half of us went out and uh, tried coffee enemas. But it was only because, you know, A, Dr. Dyer did, and B, because I was in that frame of mind. I'm still in that frame of mind. I want to be a healthy person. I want to, if, if, you know, I mean, yoga, people who do yoga are really help, healthy. Love it. Let's do some yoga. Runners are the healthiest people. Okay, great. Let's go start running. You know what I mean? Like anything, I just want to be physical, physically active. I want to be physically healthy. I want to be emotionally healthy. So um, I try anything, including a coffee enema. <laughs> yes. I yeah. finally got the scoop on the enema. Woo. <laughs> all right. That's all. That's all. We're, we can be done. I'm just kidding. So... <laughs> So I have I have earmarked and highlighted your book for my. I love everything about this. Yes, I knew you would. So, and again, people can get the book and they can read all this. So I, I think when I bring stuff up, if there's anything deeper, so on June seventeenth in two thousand seven, you wrote the number one thousand three hundred ninety four on the whiteboard, because that's how many days you had to forty. Now I get that because we're forty six. We'll be forty seven this year, and um. When you're 20, I remember my daughter was probably eight and she said, how old should I be when I have a child, when I become a mom like you? And I said, at least 25. And she goes, oh my God, mom, I'll be dead by then. <laughs> you know? And I said, well, I'm older than 28. And she goes, oh, mom, how old are you? Like I'm at death's door at 20. And I remember that vividly. So she, she was seven at the time that our perception of age changes dramatically over time. But at 20, 40 seems old and you're like washed up and your life's over and you don't realize until you're getting there. Like for me, I feel better in my 40s than I did in my 20s. But that perception of age, so you had 1,394 days left to your 40th birthday, which is turning 40 is a tough one. It's, it's, tough. it's tough. I didn't see it coming until I was sitting in my office and I was like, wait a minute, when am I going to be 40? Because I was, you know, as much as I say that I was, I was this huge mess. I, I got a lot done in those 10 years. I mean, I got three college degrees. I advanced pretty good in the company I was in. I published a book. I was a columnist. I, you know, I mean, I was, and I, I love personal development. I love helping people get over stuff and goal setting 101. And I was just sitting there trying to figure out what kind of parameters I should be putting on my next goals. I'm like, wait a minute, I want to do something by the time I'm 40. Well, wait, when is 40? And then, you know, you break it down to the days. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's not a lot of time. And the worst part about that, of course, is you read, I never, I wrote down a bunch of goals to, to accomplish by the time I was 40 and I didn't do a single one. And you talk about that two years after your 40th birthday being further away. And I know I, I'm, is the worst moment you had the worst moment you expressed in this book? Yeah. That's, I mean, cause it was horrific. You, you were on vacation, right? <laughs> yeah. With, when your wife was there and you always thought you're the guy that's and you know what ralph so my perception of you is my perception it was you were the nice guy that was maybe a little shy in high school and i think we were all a little reserved because a lot of us had um unique or dysfunctional family backgrounds that like i didn't want anybody mm -hmm. to know yeah of course uh, 
Well, like a nice kid. And then you dropped out and you don't hear. And then I, when I catch up with you again, 20 some years later, you're still that nice guy that I remember. When I read about, when I read you writing about yourself, I actually, it made me cry because I thought that's not the Ralph that I know. And that's not the person that I believe you to be. And, um, I mean, you were talking about, you were the life of the party, but you, you were like an obnoxious bug to people, butt into conversations. And I thought, good God, I, that's not you. My perception of me anyway. I've had a lot of, you know, I've had a lot of friends read that and go, you know, that's funny you say that about yourself because I don't think we saw you that way. But it's, it's truly how I saw me. I saw me as just a big, annoying, overbearing, know-it-all. And I think the truth is probably somewhere in between. But yeah. on this day, you know, you you drank a lot. You fell. You fell down the stairs of the pool. <laughs> a security guard had to rescue you. You threw up yeah. all over the place. I mean, yeah. if you're looking at worst case scenario, bad moments, this is definitely not the one that you want to pick. It was my worst ever. So... You woke up though. <laughs> you didn't wake up very nicely. <laughs> no, making out with the toilet. And in your own vomit, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. so you're and you're six feet tall. So yeah. let's for people who are trying to gauge, you're six feet tall and you're 350 pounds and you're uh, 42. And um, so, how did you? I know you woke up on that morning and said, things have got to change. Yeah. But like you said a couple of years before, you, you wake up the next day, you're still 350 pounds. Is that when the attitude shifted, like finally really shifted? No. So maybe. I'm not sure. I, I got to say this. I was ready to give up drinking months before. I was doing a radio show, a podcast called the housekeepers podcast I did it for six years and if you listen to the last two seasons the last two years almost every show we talked about how I, I talked about how i need to quit drinking and how i wanted to stop eating like an asshole and you know i i needed to re rethink what i was doing and by the time the bahamas came around i was really done drinking i was real i had i had woken up fat too many times i hated myself that's what drinking, I think that's what drugs do to you. It, it goes from, you know, you're just having fun and it's no big deal to, it's almost like the stages of death. You know how you go through the stages of death? You know, it's the, it's the, not that I've been through it, but I've read about it. It's the, the shock and then it's the denial and then it's the anger and then it's the acceptance. That's kind of what it's like with, with me with alcohol. It was, you know, it was no big deal. It was all fun, no big deal. And then it was every other day to why not just do it when i'm by myself i don't need to you know i just like the taste of alcohol i just like the way it makes me feel and then you know you start getting angry at yourself about the how you're acting and behaving because it changes you it changes the way you look at things it changes how you verbally how you talk and who you what you say and who you say it to you become this obnoxious ass and i hated it so that's why i say in the book because i'm really trying to figure out what was the magic combination that made me wake up that day and to be able to change? And I do think that all those things that I brought up, having a clear view, 
I mean, I really saw that it was all on me, that I did not have support. And it was, A, I, I really did look like an idiot. I really did. And and worse, worse than looking like an idiot to other people is when you look like an idiot to yourself. That's, that's a really raw thing to see. And that was heartbreaking because I was better than that. I've always thought I was better than that. And here it turns out I wasn't. The, the uh, witnessing, you know, I always said when I had, when I woke up fat and I've woken up fat a million times, I would always say to my wife, man, if you would have just seen me, you know, if you would have been there, you, you would know how much trouble I'm in, you know, but she was never there. I never had a witness. And the witnesses I did have were not close enough to me to make a difference. You know, they, they wouldn't have even said anything to me anyway. And so I have the most horrific night of my life, the most horrific morning. She is a witness. But it, does, it doesn't change anything. You know what I mean? It was like, I thought I needed her to see for me to be able to get the support. And that was just simply not the truth. And then, you know, good old fashioned fear. I, I am scared. I, I was really scared and scared about, well, we've all, all of us who have overdrank at one point or another, know what it's like to have the room spinning and you're, you're, you know, you're holding on for dear life and you're praying to God that A, that God exists and B, that he'll, he'll find time in his day to help you out of this drunken mess you put yourself in. That's a real fear when you're, when you're doing that. And then on top of that, I talk about this guy, Charlie. And it was really, Charlie's just an indicative to everybody who I've ever worked with in jobs that are less than what they're capable of. And I've always felt like I was better than, I had more to offer than to just be a housekeeper. I had more to offer. I, I'm smarter than that. I don't want to leave housekeeping, but I want to direct housekeeping from the front. I don't want to be the one pushing the cart. So fear, fear is a big one. And you put all those together. That's, that's how I did it. And we're focused, I mean, like right now I'm focusing on alcohol because your lowest moments, alcohol was a huge part of this whole journey for you. I didn't get heavy without alcohol. Right. Well, However, but, but, I, but I'm going to say this. I, it wasn't the calories and alcohol. It was using food to sober up because I drank too much. You know what will help you sober up at midnight? A big fat pizza. You know, <laughs> that's what I would literally get. Like I would, we'd go to dinner and we'd start drinking and then you have a couple of cocktails at dinner and then you go from dinner to the bar and then from the bar you drink too much and then, you know, at 12 o'clock you're like, I'm a little too drunk. Is there a fast food place open? Is there a Chinese available? And then we'd eat like an asshole for an hour and fall asleep. And I mean, that's how I put the weight on. I mean, I just pack it on. So. Well, and the eating, I mean, yeah, it is. It's empty calories and it's a lot of alcohol and stuff, but your eating habits and you talk about all of that in the book, there's a combination of a lot of things. I don't think there's any, just like, there's, there's a combination of a lot of things that help you want to make the change. There were a combination of a lot of things that got you to 350 pounds too. Of course. Yeah. And so then you talked about doing the math calories in calories out and, and you doing the mathematical equations. And like, you know, when I read that, I was like 1158 calories. Oh my God. So, you know, you, You've tried everything out there, basically. I mean, including the coffee enema. If you've tried that, you've tried everything. <laughs> so 
let's just go on the premise that there's no you've left no diet unturned. That's and, right. I was serious. I wanted to I wanted to win. I wanted to win. So I mean I still am morbidly curious about that one, but that it's a, that's neither here nor there. That's a totally Give it a try. Thing. Just make sure it's cold coffee. Don't you don't oh. want it, you don't want it right out of the pot. <laughs> because you know I probably would and then I'd be yeah. calling you up yeah. um, so you one of the biggest things you ended up using Weight Watchers yeah what and now my I'm only still on Weight Watchers. that I'm still on Weight Watchers right that's what you use that's what you stuck with that's what you follow well and I mean even a, a healthy weight maintenance program you you it's still calories in and calories out and my experience. If I don't, I'm sorry. If I don't track, I will gain weight. Today, I track today, or I will gain weight. I. We all have to pay attention to what we eat, and you either eat right the right amount. The only way to do right amount is, is to know what the right amount is, and then to pay attention to it. Or you eat too little or too much. That those are your only three options. I don't know how people maintain. Uh, who, who lose weight without paying attention to what they eat and counting. I don't, it never worked for me. Not tracking meant gain weight. That's it. I never, I never under ate. <laughs> that, that wasn't the problem. Nope. nope. I know that the only time my mother was at a really healthy weight was when she was actively going to Weight Watchers meetings and counting. Mm-hmm. So growing up, I saw that there was a value and it's just a value. I mean, it's a good value, a bad value. It's just, it is what it is, yeah. you know, and that you needed to learn what the values were. Um, Cause diet isn't something you're on. Diet is just what you're putting. That's what you eat. Your diet is what you eat yeah. and, and counting it. So tracking um, anybody who's ever done a fitness competition tracks the shit out of their, I mean, you, there are certain modalities where all you're doing is you're tracking everything and you have to. And the next thing you talk about, and I loved this. This was really interesting to me because I've always been this way and I didn't think about not being this way, but you said, get to know your doctor. And you never really had a good relationship with her. You never really talked to her. You kind of cover things up. Things get, keep getting worse. The test results look worse. And you finally, so talk about that because I'm a huge advocate of that. I'm going to tell you that I kind of screwed myself, I think, because, I mean, obviously, I was appointed, when I got out of the Marine Corps, I was appointed a female doctor. And I did not want a female doctor. I hated having a female doctor. I hated having physical exams by my primary, a female doctor. I hated that my primary, my female doctor was the same age as I was. Not much older than me. She's not much older than me. I was really uncomfortable about it. I would have much rathered a male doctor, but I also never spoke up. There's nothing wrong with having a male doctor. There's nothing wrong with requesting a male doctor. But for some reason, I just kind of thought like I should be getting, I should get over myself. Like who gives a shit if it's a female doctor? Like you should get over yourself. So on one hand, I thought I, I felt like I should just get over it. And on the other hand, I hated it. And so I just dealt with it and never communicated with her. I was, and she, you could tell she stopped talking to me when I went in to see her, she would just type whatever I said, how are you feeling? Good. 
and <laughs> you know your weight's up a bit yeah that's all right da -da -da -da. uh you know what i mean like she just stopped communicating with me too because i was so off-putting and she turned she it was maybe oh my gosh five or six years of going to see her twice a year i was on every medication you can imagine from prilosec to uh, low blood pressure medicine to cholesterol medicines and she was constantly just going you know you're gonna have to do something about your weight and your eating habits and blah 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 and then this one time she turned the computer screen to me because you know you're weighing in every time you go in she turned the computer screen to me and she showed me the building of a mountain and it's literally just this graph that just goes straight up and i go what's that she says that's your weight over the last five or six years it was just a straight graph up on the computer screen. I was like, holy. She said, you should go to Overeaters Anonymous. They have one here at the hospital. And you, you got to do something. You know, so I was like, all right, great. And she'd also sent me to a type 2 diabetes specialist, which I talk about in the book, even though I did not have type 2 diabetes. <laughs> He's like, you will soon enough. So you might as well go learn about type 2 diabetes. So I went to an Overeaters Anonymous class and it was the most depressing thing I've ever been to. And I really felt like I didn't belong there. That was, that was challenging. That was challenging. And, and you know what's funny about that is I was the smallest person in the room. Like everybody in that room wished they, they weighed as much as I did. They wished they weighed as little as I did. I mean, that's, you know, to put things into perspective. It was, it was crazy. So it wasn't until I finally went back and I saw my doctor Lynn and I said, you know, I, I, I started crying. I couldn't, I was just so miserable. But that's when she could actually help you because I mean, I don't know how I would have reacted as a doctor in that situation where you're not getting anywhere, yeah. you know, I was a terrible patient. <laughs> you, you well, you can only help somebody who wants to be helped. You, you cannot help somebody who doesn't want your help. There's not, you are at, there, there's nothing you can do. So mm -hmm. now then I'm going to, I'm going to talk about the highlights that stood out for me because I read the book. Um, <laughs> this is, you know, so I, I mean, I, I really love the getting to know your doctor and really talking to your doctor because I've never had any huge health issues, but I don't want them. And yeah. so like, I'm a big preventative medicine type person. I want to get my blood checked every year and it's perfect every year. And I just want to make sure it's still perfect. And I, mm -hmm. that's because the moment that it's not is when I want to know, I don't want to know down the road. That's scary as hell for me, but I watched that with my parents and I, and I watched your journey and that, you know, you, I want to get it ahead of time. So I love that. But one thing, another thing you talked about was put yourself first. And I don't think, I mean, I think maybe because I'm a woman and I'm a mom, I realize that women self-care is a treat and it should never be a treat. It should be part of your regular life. And you really talk about, you know, take care of yourself. And you use the same analogy I've used in coaching when you're on an airplane. If there's anything turbulence, the oxygen mask drop and who do you put it on first? Yourself. And if you, I mean, there's, there's a million analogies, you know, you can't pour it out to someone else if you have nothing in your cup that you are running on empty for a really long time, 
trying to help other people. Not that you, you can know. I'm glad that you brought up the mom factor because I think that that's a really good example of what it's like to manage people when you're not very good at managing people, especially when you're first starting out, you start taking on all the responsibilities of running their lives. And that is quite literally what it's like to be a mom as well, because you are responsible. And, and so you really do stop managing and, and putting time for yourself in. But one of the greatest statements I've ever read, and I, I totally believe it's true, I've done the research, and that is, if you love yourself, truly, deeply, madly love yourself, people will beat a path to your door to love you back. It's true. People who do not like themselves, who don't love themselves, who don't take care of themselves, they have very few and far between friends. They don't have a lot. People who are on top of their game and put, you know, they have self-respect and they're putting themselves first and they're taking time for themselves and everybody wants to be around that person. Everybody. Well, and break it down. I mean, that person is happy. That person is self-assured. That person has good self-esteem and confidence. Um, and I think when you're taking care of yourself, you, when you're taking care of yourself, you're looking at your shit too. You're not just getting a spa massage. It isn't about that. You really, like you said, all the self-learning, all of the listening to the motivational speakers, learning from other people, you are starving for that you're craving that when you're looking into self-help because you want to look at all the things that you're not good at or that you lack and you want to at least become better right and so why wouldn't that be a magnet to other people because uh, I, I went into a place a couple days ago that I worked at that I hadn't been in three months and people were like wow you look so happy and I am happy, but it's not just because I'm not working at that place, although that does have something to do with it. <laughs> but it's, it's because I took some time. And that sh it shows when people take time. But we perceive it as selfish. And I, I don't know, I don't understand where, in, where, this, where this breakdown come in in communication with each other and ourselves that self-care should not be absolutely a priority i i grew up my mom you know we were really we were we i'll tell you there's a difference between being broke and being poor and financially we were broke you know we we had more month at the end of the paycheck kind of thing right there was they just completely my parents both did not earn enough money and misspent every money they all the money they had right so that, but they were but more than that, we were raised poor, meaning it was very hard to get out of the mentality that there is nothing, we'll never be nothing, we're never going to have anything, you know, it's for other people, not for us. That's poor, right? My mom, because we were so broke, and, you know, kids are growing like weeds, we would need a new pair of sneakers or a new pair of underwear or whatever. And every time my mom got us something, I, not every time, but I remember a lot, she would make the point that she couldn't get anything you know when we would complain as kids you know like i want the nike sneakers or the adidas sneakers you know and she's like you're gonna get the kmart sneakers and that's it because listen i haven't bought new underwear in six years because you kids take every bit of the money i remember that everything was always tied to how much of a sacrifice she was giving to make it so that we were clothed in one sense or another and it was really like her, she was putting her kids first. And, but it didn't, it didn't put 
I don't mean to say this. It didn't put it in a good light. It was like, stop putting us first. Then you should put yourself first. And then us, you know, don't, don't do that. It wasn't, it never sat right with me. I never quite understood it. And I think that a lot of people are like that. A lot of people not only put their kids before every single thing in their life, like they're, you know, they're just a couple of nails short of dragging around a cross and nail themselves on every time something, oh, you need a ride. Oh, great. You know, when I was a kid, I never got a ride. Oh, you know, like everything is always this because they don't put, they don't put themselves first ever. Start putting yourself first. Start taking time for yourself. Even if it's like you say, it doesn't have to be a spa day. Oh, my kids know. I mean, because they grew up with their mom being a runner and they know. They're like, Mom, you need to go for a run. And I think, am I, <laughs> am I like a, am I, am I a raving bitch? And, and I'll ask them, like, am I in like some foul mood? And no, but my kids are aware that there's something that I need, that I am better person for it. It's not that I'm bad. It's not that I'm grouchy or rude or a raving bitch or that I'll even become that way. But I'm glad because I was raised the same way you were. And I'm glad that my kids know that it's important for me to take time for myself because I will be better for everyone else because that you won't miss that hour, that two hours. Because when I, when you're, when you're taking care of yourself, the time you're spending is such great time. No one gives a shit that you were gone for two hours to go for a run or whatever. And so I don't understand at all why we have this mentality, but we it, it's rampant that self-care is some, it, it's not a priority. It's, it's some special occasion. Like on Mother's Day, you get to do something nice for yourself. And when did that happen? But I, so I love that you write in there to take care of yourself because you will see a different person come out of that. You may still be 350 pounds, but if you get the running gear and you start walking, you are going to feel better about yourself. You'll be a better person for it. I felt amazing after a nice walk at 350 pounds. Amazing. Really? Crazy. To total attitude change. Total attitude change. Just walking. I didn't lose a single pound. I was still as heavy as a house. But I felt better. Well, your attitude shifted and then you were doing something for yourself. Yeah. I love it. And that's a great, that's a great call. That's exactly how I would start too. to get up a little earlier than everybody else and put on your go fastest go for a walk. Right. And you know, it doesn't, I understand being heavier and not wanting to buy stuff. You talked about clothing in here somewhere too, didn't you? Yeah. yeah talking about burning your fat clothes. Fat clothes. That's, a, that's tough. That's really tough. Yeah. That, that's a whole mental shift because we held, I held on to all my fat clothes because I knew I was going to get fat again. Imagine that. That's like quitting smoking and keeping the cigarettes in the drawer. Because you're going to quit, you're going to quit, but you'll smoke again. Wrong attitude to have. And not until I listened to a book by uh, Craig, um, Craig Beck. He, he wrote a book about, well, he has, you know, it's so funny. All the things I've done, I've listened. He has hypnotics, hip, hypnotic tapes. We would listen to to quit drinking. I used to listen to them every morning. <laughs> cassette tape listening to ocean waves and he like you do not need to drink I'm like yes you know 18 hours later i'm hammered uh it didn't work out but maybe it did i don't know you know you never know like 
how much did I need to have before it kicked in, you know? I don't know. But it was years before I actually quit drinking. But he did the same thing about weight loss. And he, he made the whole point about burning your fat clothes and destroying them. And are you going to be fat again? Then get rid of it. There's nobody who is a size medium who goes to the store and goes, oh, that 3X looks really nice. I'm going to grow into it. No one. No one. No. <laughs> No, I've never, I've never bought up a size to grow into it. Never. Not <laughs> since I was like, like 10, uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and that was because we were poor too. And you did that so it lasted longer. That's right. But Funny. even if you get that, and you don't like to buy the clothes that are your size because the mentality should be that you want to get into a smaller size. But Something switches in your mind sometimes when you buy just a t-shirt. Yes, you want to grow out of it and give it away. It will feel good to grow out of it and give it away um, because it's too big for you. It away. Let me clear that up. I don't give any clothes away. I throw them away. Do you really? Oh, my gosh. And I recommend throwing them away. So no donations? No donations. Donations are the devil. Let me say it like this. It's not bad to give. Here's the problem. At 350 pounds, one of my problems was I was lazy. It's a lot of work to carry 350 pounds around, all right? So I didn't have a lot of energy for extra stuff. So I would bag up all my clothes. I'd lose a few size, you know, a few pounds. I'd get down a size. I'd put them in a bag. That bag would be heavy. I mean, you know, big, huge garbage bag. And I'd put it next to the front door, and I'm going to bring it to the car soon. Good Lord. I just, brought, I just bagged it all up. Tomorrow, I'll bring it to the car. And of course, I never do. Instead, I have a pizza. And I don't mean a piece. I mean the entire pizza. And then I'm feeling bloated. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is not fitting me well. Did you shrink? And so I go <laughs> to the bag that's by the door. And I pull out the 3X shirt that I was going to donate. And now it's back in my closet. When you throw it away, and this shirt is tight all of a sudden, you go, all right, it's not the shirt. What did I, I got to stop, right? Right. Because you have no bag, no bag to pull from. You can't even go down to Salvation Army and find it again. I don't, I think one of the greatest things ever is I don't own anything above a large. I love that. I was a 4X. I had a 20-inch neck. Oh, I my God. I, my waist was 48 inches. Wow. 48. I'm at a 34 now. I mean, could you imagine? What size is your waist? 26. There was two of you. <laughs> imagine two of you. I could, like, one for each leg. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I, and I, I, I understand. I, I understand even, like, the not wanting to take it out to the car, and then it's there, and it's easy, and... Uh, but I like, I like that you, you actually had to decide to take the bag to the car Yeah. and put it in the dumpster or. That's right. And listen, I've gotten it in the car. I've gotten the bag in the trunk, but then I got to find the place where you can drop it off and it's out of my way. And I just, I simply don't do it. As a matter of fact, if they didn't come and pick up my garbage in front of my house, it would still be in the house. Because he's going to drive it to the dumpster. You know what I mean? Like, Okay. So throw them away. Just throw them away. Throw them away. Okay. The other, the other advice you gave, now I'm a morning person, so I love your morning routine idea. Because I'm yeah. like, 
oh, it's five. Let's all get started. But people who aren't morning people don't like to hear that. It's okay if you're not a morning person. I think my biggest point is you have to wake up with intention. Have, have some guideline of what, what are you going to do? All right, let's say you're going to wake up at noon. Fine. What are you going to do at 12.05, 12.10, 12.30? What do you need to have done before 1 o'clock? Have a plan. Set yourself up for success. And you were very specific in your, I mean, you had it outlined. Uh, well, I was giving an example. So I was just showing you what, how I do it. Yeah, which is great because you had it all bullet pointed out. And so that's accountability for you when you wake up. Mm -hmm. You get up and these certain things need to be done. Was it hard to learn how to do that? I read a book called, so everything's about reading, right? So <laughs> called The Miracle Morning. And The Miracle Morning was fantastic. It, it, for a bunch of reasons, I got a bunch out of that book, namely to figure out how much sleep you need. You know, we run through life with we all need eight hours of sleep. And that might be true for a lot of people. Some people may need nine. Who knows? But what do I need? How much sleep do I need to operate on? And to figure that out, you got to put yourself through a little test. And it's not a day test. It takes weeks, months of research of, all right, I'm going to go to bed every night at this specific time. And then... So let's say I'm always going for eight hours. Let's see if I can operate pretty well in seven hours. Set my alarm for seven hours later. Feeling pretty good. A week or a month goes by, no issues at all. Maybe I can do it in six and a half hours. And that's how I did. I just kept ratcheting it back, ratcheting it back. And I got to six hours. And I went, six hours, I do really, really good at six hours. Like, it is my sweet spot. And I went to five hours. Shit show. Nope. Five isn't enough. I can't, I can't go, I can't sustain it for a number of days and be productive. I get groggy at night. It's, it's too, it's not enough. So six, five isn't good, but six is perfect for me. So six is what I, but you, you got to figure it out for yourself. For some people, again, eight hours is the perfect number. Some is seven, some is six and a half. No, for me, it's six. Okay. So you, I mean, you did a lot of self-analysis during I that. still am. I still am. I, I want to know everything. I want to be able to, I want to be the best that I can be. And it takes a little bit of. You don't know what that looks like. I have no idea. Right. I'm still working on it. So one of the things I'm going to contradict myself because I have kids and I don't like the no child left behind stuff. Like everybody earns a medal and everybody you're, I mean, sometimes I, I just don't like that whole platform. And then I read in your book and I'm like, shit, Ralph, you're messing with my whole mojo because like, what do I have on the wall behind me? Bunch of medals. They look beautiful. Yeah, okay. Now, was I the winner? No. Now? Well, once I was. I was first woman. Oh, yeah. Once out of like hundreds. It's enough. It's enough. <laughs> But that's not the point. You talk about earning a medal, and I've read this other places before, and it's 150% true that when you go, it's like a mini graduation, you describe it to you. But when you complete that race, you've still completed that race. When you completed that grade, you still completed that grade. Right. And so I always have to like dial back my um, disdain for some of the and some of the no child left behind i'm not gonna let go of i don't like it personally but it is true that when you trained if you do a couch to 5k what did you do first 
you started walking you said yeah okay and then you started jogging that's right between telephone poles right and then so it wasn't far and it wasn't fast nope. but you were still doing it and you were still doing more it was i wanted to be the type of person who went for walks i wanted to be the type of person who walked every day Again, right I wanted to be the type of person and then i signed up for my first 5k and i want to be the type of person who runs 5ks you know at 5k level they don't give medals well, some here do, but yeah, not always, not always. Well, no. I mean, I, none that I've run. And so, and then my friend asked me if I wanted to do a rugged maniac, an obstacle course race. And I was like, that sounds fun. Sounds like the Marine Corps, which is a lot of fun. And so I was like, yeah, absolutely. And so I started doing that. And then my friend Eric said, there's a half marathon down by my in town where I live in Richmond, Virginia. You should run it with me. We should run it together. And I was like, a half marathon? Yeah, let's try it. Let's, you know, again, I'm feeling pretty good. We've run a couple of races together, 5Ks, mud runs. And I'm like, I'll try it. Why not? The, we go, we did it. The day after we ran the half marathon, which was life-changing, we got a medal. It was the first medal I've ever received in my life. I couldn't take the thing off. I mean, I was, ex I couldn't believe how great it felt. To have people who I did not know say, that's a nice medal. Did you, did you run today? And you go, yeah, I ran a half marathon. They're like, oh, my God, you ran a whole half marathon? Like, that's far. Because it is far. And you get that recognition from people. And it makes you feel good about yourself. It makes you want to work harder and do it again to recreate that. And I think that that happens whether it's at a race or graduating a high school or you know the be be on the, the winning baseball team or whatever i think it's the same thing so i am a huge fan of awards i agree that first place should get a first place trophy and a second place and a third i, I agree it should be bigger better but i also think that everybody should get a participation medal or trophy or it encourages you to do they see we think that it, it rewards poor behavior it doesn't it encourages more behavior in that same direction if you reward somebody for negative behavior they're going to continue with the negative behavior if you reward them for the positive behavior they're going to continue with the, i mean it's just oh i remember i remember my first one my first time the half marathon and? And it was more than the medal, though. It was, it was the camaraderie. And I traveled some, right? I only knew the couple of people I was with. But it's that camaraderie that you're doing something together, and um, that it's healthy. That you're working toward a healthier version of yourself. And just the total, I don't know, arms open wide, hugging of the whole community in running. I. I wanted more of that. And then I got a medal on top of it that proved that I put in the work to finish that half marathon. And I was like, damn straight I did. And it was a lot of work and it was hard. And there were times I wanted to quit and I didn't always like it. And, um, that's that you do, you do want more of that because it feeds something in you that does feel really good. It's a very happy endorphin feeding thing. And so I loved what you talked about getting the medals. Cause I know when my kids have done it, the running's not, Running's not always great. I've dragged them to some, but man, they like the medal at the end. Yeah. So, I mean, 
Sometimes it can start there. And I don't care. I always tell people, look, if you know you can walk 13 miles, sign up for a half marathon. Because it's not about the speed. It's, it's, the, it's the fact that you put in the time and effort to do it, and you, you were at the start line with me, and you crossed the finish line. And everybody's still there cheering. And just freaking do it. Because it's not about being the first, second, or third, because we get that in our heads. Well, I'm not going to win it. I'm not in a leader or pro runner. No, but you still cross the finish line the same way. Mm -hmm. I loved that. And I love my medals and I wouldn't give them up. I'd stab you with a fork. <laughs> I just bought a wonderful metal rack. I just absolutely love mine. I, I love my metal rack also. And I send people to get metal racks at the metal rack place because it feels good. It is. It's a huge sense of accomplishment. Yeah, so, yeah. and, and you know, there's only one first place. So when there's like a thousand people in the race, my odds of being that person, even if you'd cut it down to men and women, pretty damn slim. Probably not going to happen. Yeah. So that doesn't make me feel less than. It makes me feel like they have a huge accomplishment also at a faster pace. And that's amazing. But I love that. So another thing that you talk about is being punished. And that's why I don't like the word diet. And I get hot or, or I love the word diet. We should all use it. <laughs> but you know, I mean, it's like one or the other, the diet is not, you're not being punishment. Like, like I, it's not on my diet. I'm being punished. So talk a little bit about that. About what specifically? Well, you talked about how to change that attitude. And I loved the, the change in attitude saying, I'm not going to eat that. When I say I'm not going to eat that, well, maybe it's because I don't like coconut. So, yeah. you know what? I don't really want to eat that. Could be because I don't like it or because right now I'm not feeling it. Or I'm, there's a million reasons why we turn something down instead of that. Oh God, I can't because I'm being punished because I'm on a diet. <laughs> I'll be whipped at home later and flogged if I eat this. And no, I think I mean, it's a shift in attitude. So how did you find that? I think it is. I think you do have to have safeguards up for yourself. I think you do have to protect yourself around, you know, you don't I want to hang around certain people. You shouldn't be around some people. You shouldn't be exposed to some television programming or, you know, something like that or whatever's right for you. And there's also food you should avoid, but it's not a pun. I'm not being punished for it. I'm taking care of myself. That's the difference. That's the difference. It's the whole thing is about taking care of you and doing what's right by you. And wanting to. And wanting to. If you think not having cookies is a punishment, then have all the cookies you want. That's what your reward is. Doesn't matter. But if you shouldn't have that many cookies, like I shouldn't have any cookies, I just tried an Oreo cookie with the one they have um, Pop Rocks in them now. Oh my God. Yeah, because they haven't, they haven't perfected the art of getting enough sugar in it yet. So they put Pop Rocks in them. And so I was like, I've got to try one, you know. And of course, it was an Oreo cookie, so it tasted good. But then I looked it up on Weight Watchers. I was like, son of a gun, it's three points for one cookie. I was like, all right, what am I doing myself? <laughs> it's not a punishment because I'm not going to have another Oreo cookie. It's smart for me not to have another Oreo cookie. Right, and it has value to you, and you have value to yourself. Yeah. I did have one, though. Sometimes you want to take the three points and that's okay. I did not know it was three points. I don't know that I would have if I knew it was. I see. That's why you pre-track. You got to look stuff up first before you eat it. You're going to get in trouble. Actually, that's a huge, that's a huge point 
because food just has value. Yeah. And an Oreo is three points, right? It has its calories, it's fat, it's sugar, it's whatever. And it's just a value. There's nothing good or bad about it. It just, it is an Oreo cookie with Pop Rocks in it. That's right. But when you look things up beforehand, it really determines whether or not you think it's worth the value. Absolutely. I can't tell you how many times I put a meal together and then started tracking and go, okay, get that out of there. I don't need that. That's how I stopped eating cheese. Because as you're, you know, you got this one meal cheeseburger, you go, all right, so a four ounce cheeseburger with the bread and everything. So, okay, so it's 12 points. You only have 10. All right, so the cheese is three. Let's get rid of the, do we need the cheese? Well, what if I can get rid of that? I'll keep the mayonnaise. I'll put the mayonnaise because mayonnaise is only two points. But then do I need both sides of the bread? So maybe I'll just have one piece of the bread. I'll leave it with a fork. You know what? After a while, do you even need the bread? All of a sudden, it's a burger with no cheese, no mayonnaise, a lettuce, tomato, and you're, you know, cutting with a fork and knife. You're just going, I don't need that. That, that, that. What I really want is a cheeseburger, or, you know, or just the burger. I don't need the cheese. And so you just start getting rid of stuff. But it is a value. I mean, when you see the value and it's glaring you in the face, you have to decide whether or not that thing, that cheese is worth it. And a lot of times, it's just not. You realize how much you don't want something when you estimate the value. And it's not worth the value. So, yeah, I love that. I love the idea of spitting it out, too. So I talk about spitting it out. And I actually, the Rocky Marciano story is hilarious to me, where he would no longer swallow meat. He was only chewing it. And then he would spit it out so he could gain his muscle because he was becoming a pro, a pro uh, fighter. Which, by the way, he was an amateur fighter and lost about half the fights he was in. When he decided to become pro, he didn't get sponsorship. He didn't get bigger muscles. He didn't, he just simply said, you know what? I'm no longer going to be an amateur fighter. I'm going to be a pro. He never lost a fight. Isn't that crazy? Just by deciding he was a professional, he never lost a fight. There's magic in, in, in mindset there. But the whole spit it out. Again, my friend Sarah, I, we're, there was some kind of like a display with food and they're giving free giveaways. And so she, like, we're trying to, she's like, I'll try when she tries it. And then she's like, like, spits it out. I'm like, what is it? She goes, it's not worth the calories. It's not that good. And I was like, oh my God, you can do that? <laughs> because once it was in my mouth, it was, it was as good as being eaten. I was swallowing it from there. If it was in my mouth, I was swallowing it. And she wasn't. She was like, not worth the calories. Nope. I love that. I just love it. Spit it out. Right. Which is, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I've spit it out or not. I think I just say it's not worth it before. Like, I don't really like cake at all. I do. I'm a big donut fan. Okay. And so the Dunkin' Donuts comes out with a pumpkin donut every October, pumpkin flavored donut. And I think it's just fantastic, but I'll spit it out. I'll, oh, it's a wonderful taste. Shoop, spit it out. I don't eat the whole thing. I don't eat any of it. I'm just chewing it because I love the taste of it. But that is awesome. Yeah. So if I, if there was something that I really liked, but I didn't want the calories, you can still get it. Yeah. Yeah. You can't taste it once you swallow it anyway. So what do you need it for? Yeah. That's true. It doesn't really make any difference at that point. That's right. That's really funny. <laughs> it's it's like pre bulimia. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, oh, that's gross. But it's Sorry. but and it's true, but it's not true. But actually, it's a good way to be able to, especially if you're coming down off some of that sugar high and coming down off of that, to actually have the taste in your mouth. I mean, if there was something that I really, really wanted and struggled with, that would be a great way to segue it out of my life, too. Yeah, just spit it out. Spit it out. Yeah. The end of the book is when you talk about Rush Limbaugh saving your life and um, how you drove over that mountain. So you were saying... You still drove over the mountain that you didn't, it was after a job interview? Yeah. Okay. So your, your car's acting up. It couldn't handle the elevation change and you're still broke. You're still unemployed. You still hate your lot in life. Your car's still broken down, but your attitude has changed. I've completely changed my, I went from being a victim and having a victim mentality to understanding that I, I had the I had the ability to change, and it was backed on. It, it was because of where I I live in America, and I'm an American, and in America we have opportunities that other people in the world don't have. You know, we hear about that at the dinner table. Finish your eat what you're eating because the people are starving in Africa or whatever. We hear it in that sense, but we never hear it in a positive sense where. Take advantage of your birthplace. You live in the greatest place in the world with the most opportunity. You can literally change and become and be anything that you want. You work hard enough for it. Rush Limbaugh is the first person to ever say that to me. And he wasn't saying it to me specifically, but changed my life. But he was. And the, one of the themes throughout your book, throughout our conversation, is the change in your attitude. And sometimes that has to come by hitting your rock bottom. And sometimes that has to come by hearing it from someone else or, I mean, a million different ways, but basically it's all about you and your attitude. Yeah. Dieting. What I learned the most is losing weight. It's not about losing weight. It's about becoming a different person. You cannot be the same person who gained the weight. as the same person who's going to lose the weight. There's no way to do that. You have to change. So how do you view yourself now? I'm pretty fantastic. See, that's what no. we all thought before. Yeah, sure. Uh, so you just joined the party. You know what? I've, I've, I've forgiven myself a lot because I, I always felt like I was cheated. Forgiving myself is not the right answer. Not, not the right thing I was, what I mean to say. I always felt like I was cheated. I felt like if I grew up in a different household, if I had different parents, if I lived in a different town, if I had more, you know, somebody, if somebody, if I had heard Rush Limbaugh 10 years before I heard him, my whole life would be different. I wouldn't, because I, I, for the longest time, I felt like I was way behind. I didn't get my GED till I was 24. I joined the Marine Corps at the age of 27. You know, like, I should have done that at 18. I should have graduated high school at 18. I should have been done college at 22. I should have, should have, should have, should have, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. And it was everybody else's fault. It was because of where I lived. It was because of where I grew up. It was because of my neighbors, my family, my cousins. It was because of everything except me. The truth is it was always my fault. There were a few things that I got to give myself a pass on. I did not get to choose my upbringing. I did not get to choose. But at some point, you do have to go, okay, it's all on you now. I'm old enough. I'm responsible enough. I'm resourceful enough. 
Yep. I can either stay where I am and be who I was raised and how I was raised, or I can become somebody different. And choosing to become somebody different is how I've been able to, to let go of, you know what, to take more responsibility for myself. I know that it's all on me. If Like I just started my own company in January. For the longest time I wanted to do it. For the longest time I wanted to quit working for, the, for a company and I wanted to go out on my own. I always thought if I went on my own, I'd be able to be, I'd be happier, I'd be more resourceful, I'd be able to be more self-reliant, I'd be happier. All those things are true, but it took me years for me to be able to do it. And by me and be able to do it, be able to say, Ralph, who's responsible for Ralph? Who's responsible for Ralph's happiness, Ralph's finances, Ralph's future? It's Ralph, only Ralph. Let's do it. We got this. We can. I didn't have that kind of ability, that kind of confidence four years ago. You do videos, little video. I mean, you do a lot of little video clips that are really fun, but you did some on tips. How many tips did you do? Well, I have, when I wrote the book, I wrote 101 tips, but then I only published 50. So I've been going through and I do a little Facebook, live Facebook videos, going through the tips that are in the book. Plus I do tips that I, that never made the book. Okay. So the book is incredibly great and I didn't have a struggle with weight like you had a struggle with weight and I loved it. So regardless of whether it's a weight or an attitude or an addiction or whatever it is, people are going to read the book and get a tremendous amount of value out of it because there's so much in there that relates regardless of what the issues are. So I, it was awesome. Adventures in Dietland. How can people find you the easiest? What's the easiest way to find you? Easiest way to find the book is on Amazon. Just okay. go to Amazon. Yeah, look for Adventures in Dietland. Um, how to win a game of dieting from a former fat guy. The easiest way to find me is you can go to adventuresindietland.com and that's actually where I've been blogging a lot and that's where I've been putting the other 51 tips that I wrote. So if you want to find more tips and then Facebook is the best place for me and I accept all friends, all friends. I've been to adventuresindietland.com. It was really fun, um, you know, because always, what's that? <laughs> you can see all my fat pictures. Yeah, you know what? It's that was actually that that takes a lot of courage on your part. I mean, I know you wrote the book about it, but it takes a lot of courage to expose what you feel like was the worst version of yourself. And um, it's great for people to be able to see that because then the rest of us don't feel so alone in our struggles. And um, your bravery, not everyone has that kind of bravery. So I really actually appreciated it. And um, yeah, no, it's really good. Adventuresindietland.com is that's that should be visited, and like you said, Facebook. And I'm so thankful. I'm thankful that I knew the before version, the during, and the after. But for those who don't know you, uh, sweetest guy ever, and now you're embarking on triathlons. I know. I can't wait. I'm really super excited about that. And all of your running, and you can you can cyber stalk you any way you want. So, thank I you have for a half marathon on Sunday. Oh, what's that? I have a half marathon this Sunday coming up in Fairfield, Connecticut. How, are you doing one race in every state? I am. I'm running a marathon in every state, and for the last, um, I just ran my tenth 
ninth, ninth marathon distance in nine months. So I've been running a marathon a month, except for this last one, I ran an ultra marathon. How far? 50K, 31 miles. Nice job. All right. So we can follow your adventures and get lots of tips from someone who has been out there in the trenches. All right. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening in to Jen Taylor Rerouting. Like, share, and of course, comment. I welcome input with attitude. Get a copy of my book on Amazon, Hello, My Name is Warrior Princess, or check out my website, jentaylor.net. And if you still want more, sign up for one of my coaching packages.